Mr. and Mrs. Evangelical of number 316 Piety Drive were proud to say that they were perfectly normal, thank you very much. Then their children, some of whom supposed they had been living in cupboards under the stairs, learned about a world of witches, wizards, and schools for both J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series. Now, 20 years after the first Potterverse film premiered in theaters, how do we as Christians view the adventures of the boy who lived? Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com, where we explore the best Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond with occasional side trips into other fantastical stories, not necessarily made by Christians. Either way, we apply their meanings to the real world that our author, Jesus Christ, calls us to serve. And this is episode 90. Hold on, I need to do the voice. Episode 90. Does the Harry Potter series cast or condemn real-world dark magic? I'm E. Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven.com, also the co-author of a non-fiction book about fiction called The Pop Culture Parent, and I am flying solo on my broom for this episode. Zachary Russell is my co-host, but it turns out as we were planning this show that he has never read the Harry Potter series, nor has he seen any of the films, so we decided to uh, not to send him to the cupboard under the stairs, uh, but just to uh, leave him on the uh, train platform, platform nine and three quarters, presumably. Uh, he's not quite yet ready to enter the wizarding world. Sorry if everything I'm saying now sounds very fanboyish, but this is going to be a fairly fan-intensive episode about the Harry Potter series. It is now the long-awaited Harry Potter episode that we've been planning at Fantastical Truth. Not so much one exploring the fictional magic of the series, although we definitely get into that. Not so much cautioning or overpraising the series, uh, but just asking what effect did this series have on Christians back in the 90s? And what effect is it having now, especially now that the author J.K. Rowling has been canceled twice over or 17 times? I forget what the total is now. Uh, I'm still generally supportive of uh, J.K. Rowling, and we'll get into that with our interview with our special guest, Shane Morris, uh, who hails from the Colson Center and the Upstream Podcast. By the way, we have explored fictional magic on the podcast before in a two-part series that Zach and I did. Take a look at the show notes for those links to our fictional magic series to go a little bit more in-depth. We do allude to that, though, in our interview uh, with Shane. Also, you can subscribe to lorehaven.com. That is our website from which Fantastical Truth originates. You can get articles every week as well as new reviews of Christian-made fantasy every Friday and new podcast episodes every Tuesday. I think this year you'll want to subscribe to Lorehaven even more than before because I think it will be exclusively for free Lorehaven subscribers that you get access to this all-new, all-amazing, generally fantastical project we've been working on hopefully to launch in January. As we've been saying in some early starting promos, New Year, new quests, exclusively at Lorehaven. You'll get that announcement uh, as well as an early hint of it in a quote from Josiah DeGraff's recent article about how God did not mean for Christians to read and enjoy fiction alone. God also did not mean for us to live on bread alone, and yet we enjoy heavily breaded concessions such as those available at the podcast concession stand. I just stopped by, uh, peeled some of the plastic off of the trays, and it looks like there's a few items here that we need to go over to set expectations for this conversation. 
As I mentioned in this episode, we won't focus so much on the fictional magic at this time. Uh, we delved into that pretty deeply in our fictional magic two-part series, and we can expect to do that again in upcoming episodes of Fantastical Truth. You can find those links in the show notes. Also, take a look at Marion Jacobs' uh, recent article at Lorehaven about discerning fictional magic. That was called Try These Three Practical Questions to Discern Fictional Magic with Particular Applications to Discerning Parents. In this interview, Shane and I focus on the greater themes of Harry Potter and its fans and enemies. Another concession is that we do touch on some issues that some people would consider political, especially when you're talking about the sexual revolution and the redefinition of gender and all of that. Uh, unlike some podcasts and Christian resources, we don't plan on camping here a lot. It's just where we find ourselves lately because, as our mission statement says, we want to engage the real world, applying the meanings of fantastical fiction to the real world Jesus calls us to serve. We can't do that without going here. So, as you'll hear, Shane and I go there, uh, particularly because Rowling, I think to her credit, has gone there. These, however, are not about politicians, parties, or even specific platforms. Politics just means relating to the public, and these issues are really more about religious worldview debates. Don't let them call it secular or neutral uh, when, in fact, it's all religion all around. Everybody's got a religion, and as we'll see, uh, even J.K. Rowling has some religious beliefs, some good, some kind of eh, but that's part of the game when Christians decide to engage a uh, overall very well-written and popular fantastical world like the Harry Potter series. So we're spending some time among wizards and magic and wands and things, but let's jump genres for a moment and go to our first sponsor for this episode. This is Bradley Caffey's novel, The Chase, which is available from Mountain Brook Fire, particularly enjoyed by YA dystopian readers who like sports stories and science fiction. Here's the description for this novel. Win the chase, be the hero, or die trying. The chaos and anarchy following the Great Collapse nearly brought the world to its knees until the unchanging law brought order and peace. Generations later, the 12 alliances of the World Coalition come together once a year to allow their best and brightest young people to compete in the chase. The prize? A chance to pass exactly one new law. When a mysterious new racer with knowledge of the outside shows up at their orbiting training center, the natural order of the Western Alliance trainees is upended. In a world where too much knowledge is dangerous, Willis and Perrin find themselves in a race to save their lives and uncover the hidden underbelly of the Peaceful World Coalition. That's a truncated version of the full novel description. You can find the link to the full description in the show notes for this episode, uh, which will go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. The Chase, book one in the Chase Runner series by Bradley Caffey is available now. You can get it on Amazon, of course, and we'll include those links and the full book cover in the show notes. Alas, before we get to the interview, I must disclaim, we are, of course, exploring questions of dark magic and uh, the better kind of supernatural forces. Alas, that apparently, purely joking here, but it seems that the dark magic interfered with my audio side of the interview with Shane Morris. Shane sounds great. We just confirmed that. Uh, but I sound like I am inside a tin can or perhaps recording my part of the podcast from the cupboard under the stairs uh, or maybe shrunken a la Rita Skeeter uh, in beetle form uh, placed under the uh, under whatever container that Hermione used. So. Please excuse our mess. This is what happens uh, when uh, Zach is not in the podcast booth at the time. Zach, please come back. Anyway, enjoy at least the Shane portion of our conversation. 
Shane Morris just got here aboard the back of a Hungarian Horntail. He is a senior writer at the Colson Center and host of the Upstream podcast, as well as co-host of the Breakpoint podcast. He has been a voice of the Colson Center since 2010 as co-author of many Breakpoint commentaries and columns. He has also written for The Federalist, The Christian Post, and Summit Ministries, and he blogs regularly for Pathios Evangelical as Troubler of Israel. He lives with his wife, Gabriella, and their three children in Lakeland, Florida. Greetings, Shane, Florida man. Thanks, Stephen. It's great to be here. Well, I appreciate your mode of transport as well. Uh, that will lead directly to our first question and the reason why we had you on Fantastical Truth today. Uh, we're going straight into chapter one. What's your origin story? How did you discover biblical faith, including your apologetics work and fantastical stories? I think that Narnia was my gateway into fantastical stories. Biblical faith was uh, my upbringing. I was raised Southern Baptist uh, in, a, in a loving, wonderful household and eventually kind of shifted over to Presbyterianism, but I thank my parents for the um, the excellent upbringing. They were a little bit on the iffy side about fantasy and magic and so forth, but um, they loved books enough that they constantly read things to me. And my dad would uh, sit down with us every night and read the great illustrated classics uh, series with the uh, big red covers and profuse illustrations. And they're kind of a bridge uh, abridgments of a bunch of classic um, stories like The Wind of the Willows and all, all the way to H.G. Wells and the Time Machine. But uh, Narnia was the gateway into magic for me and why I began to love the idea of fantasy and magic and mystical creatures and other worlds and all that. And when I, uh, you know, when I had an imagination that was shaped and formed by Narnia, the moment I encountered Harry Potter uh, a little bit later, and then the Lord of the Rings was the next big thing, obviously, staying within the Inklings. Um, that just captured my imagination and made me think this is the best stuff. You know, this is this is the exciting stuff. This is what lights up my uh, my mind and my hopes and my thoughts. And uh, and it, it illuminates Christianity for me. It makes it so much more real. So I at first I, I was kind of aboard the whole uh, uh, Harry Potter is uh, is of the devil bandwagon just because that's what I heard in religious circles. And then one day a friend Actually, I wrote a little essay about it and uh, how it was different from The Lord of the Rings. And a friend uh, uh, emailed me and he said, hey, Shane, you know, I appreciate that you said all those great things about The Lord of the Rings, but have you ever actually read Harry Potter? And and I said, well, I haven't. I'm just kind of parroting the, the talking points. And he said, you should read it before you say anything more about it, because, <laughs> you know, polite. It was his polite way of saying, you don't know what you're you don't know what you're talking about, Shane. You're you're just, you know, blowing smoke. Oh, we'll get to this in a moment, but by that point, had book seven released? Oh, no, no. This was back, uh, I think this was around the time of the release of, of Prisoner of Azkaban. So okay. it was pretty early on in the series. Yeah. yeah, so we're still in the late 90s, um, mm -hmm. I guess, before the first film released, uh, which that would be Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Slash Sorcerer's Stone, uh, which released right. in November of 2001, uh, which is one reason why we are picking up the topic now. 2001 um, it, was a big year for a yeah, lot it of really was a lot really of fantasy was. Buffs. Yeah. yeah. Well, you had Harry, yeah, the first Harry Potter film, and then of course you had uh, the Fellowship of the Ring, and uh, in about a month or so we'll have an episode about uh, the Fellowship of the Ring, looking back on that fandom as well. But all things in order. And speaking of order, you mentioned that yours was Narnia, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, like sequentially. Oh, Lord of the Rings first, I Lord think, of the Rings and then somewhere. Go. Yeah, there were a few other magical series um, scattered in there, but yeah, Harry Potter was broke on the scene for me about right about the time the first or second film was coming out. Okay. 
yeah, the, we, we didn't discover that for my part. Also, I did not discover these books before it was cool, uh, before they were in the, in the movies. Uh, I also should have mentioned earlier that we always ask this question about how you discover biblical faith and fantastical stories of every guest. Uh, really, the alt version of that question title is just, when did you accept Aslan as your Lord and Savior? Uh, <laughs> I love how you said that the, the fantasy, the magical, that, you know, in proper perspective helps to uh, illuminate uh, the biblical faith, like by reflecting the miracles, the providence of God, the epic grandeur of the gospel uh, in these fantasy worlds. Uh, can you talk about like any particular moment when you're reading Narnia or Lord of the Rings or even the Harry Potter series when you felt that? Uh, it's something like that feeling that Lewis described, and herein I butcher the German, the the sin the sinschutz. Uh, what do you that feeling of longing uh, that he mentioned when he saw his uh, his kid brother's little uh, little garden arrangement on a tin? Like, can you yeah. remember feeling that uh, through the experience of reading? Sensucht. So, Sensucht. Thank you. Yeah. So so the thing that there were a couple of reference points, and I wrote in this piece on Advent that's coming out at, at um, Breakpoint shortly, that my first experience with what I, I think Lewis means by joy was actually around Christmas. So the it same was, here, you know, actually. Yeah, 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 it was the anticipation of Christmas and all the things my parents would do, the music, the, the food, the, you know, cleaning up the house for, um, for guests to come over, opening all the windows. And we live, we live in Florida, so... Uh, in December, you open the windows. It's not, you know, it's not like the frozen north, and it's very pleasant outside. But all of the combination of all of those things, even mom's, you know, candles, really just combine to to um, inspire joy in my heart. There's this longing for something that I didn't quite understand or know. You know, that's that's how Lewis describes it. And then the second thing was I had this friend, is a neighbor, very early on. Um, I'm probably five or six at this point, and his name was Cody, and uh, and he had a this, he and his parents lived in this big house, kind of in the corner of the, the, the acreage that we shared behind a field. And he was from Canada. His family was from Canada. And he described Canada to me. Now, I had never been to Canada. To this day, I've never been to Canada. But um, the way he described it, it, it inspired joy for me because it was like this land of very you know deep, dark, great forests, mountains, things like that. And I had kind of pictured a Narnia sort of setting in my mind. And then when I went to Narnia, it was like, oh yes, this is the, you know, as, as Lewis calls it, the northernness. There's a, there's an otherworldliness uh, that seems familiar about it. There's a, um, a depth to this wilderness that begs to be explored and, um, and understood and it's full of magic and mystery. So that was, I, I guess that was my first experience with it. And then I just recognized it as it, as it hit me in these other, these other works. In The Hobbit, I recognized it vividly. Um, when the Fellowship of the Ring movie came out, it was like full blast um, northernness. There was that joy, that sansuk, the, the sense in Middle Earth that it is, it's a place of danger and mystery and even evil. There's bad things out there in the in the Misty Mountains, but uh, there was this expansiveness. Like I've got to visit this place. I want to be in this place so badly. It it seems to matter more than um, than my world. And everyone goes through that little moment, right, where their world becomes drab. But if, you know, according to Tolkien and Lewis, eventually you come through on the other side and realize, oh, my world has been re-enchanted by visiting these other worlds. 
Exactly. You may leave the Shire, uh, but then come back and you find that your entire worldview, uh, your entire yeah. lifestyle has been changed by your experiences uh, out there on the fantastic frontier. Uh, interesting, you talked about being enchanted by these uh, portrayals of Canada, which once again is to the north. You know, for Lewis, that right. northernness would have been, you know, roughly northern Europe, but not so much a region as a uh, an aesthetic. Um, uh, an, an attitude, a posture, to, you know, a worldview, really, uh, of of the legends of the the North and all of that, you know, uh, the Norway and all of those myths about Vikings and such. Yeah, uh, this I think is just important to go over, uh, not just to delight in the act of delighting, but to realize that for us, you and me, and for many other readers of these works and the Harry Potter series, uh, all of this contributes to that shared experience of awakened longing which for us led directly to God, to back, back to the gospel. Uh, this to us is a reflection of the gospel, not necessarily a contradiction to the gospel or an endorsement of idolatry. Although many other readers, and we try to be balanced on, on, on fantastical truth, many other readers do see it as idolatry, or they do see only the hazards. Mm-hmm. And so we want to be sensitive to that, but also contribute our experience in there and saying, hey, this is not how it was for us. And maybe you will find that you also have that longing. And if not, then put the books away. You know, we're not telling you have to read the Harry Potter series or anything like that, or, or even Christian-made fantasy series like Narnia or The Lord of the Rings. If you have that association with evil, uh, then maybe this isn't for you. But our experience also counts. Which leads to our, our chapter two here uh, in the podcast, the first cancellation uh, why did evangelicals initially object to Harry Potter? And you and I have both written about this uh, to various degrees. The anti-Harry Potter phenomenon was something that I really spent a lot of time discussing with people because I became this convert to to uh, Harry's Wondrous World after reading the books uh, and recognizing in them so much of what I loved about um, Narnia. It was even clear to me that it felt like Harry's world was kind of a jut of a spur off the mountains of Aslan. You know, it it felt like it had something to do with his world. Even the emblem of Gryffindor House is this, you know, big lion on the flags, and it looks like their mascot is is Aslan. And so, um, I think the the real issue that evangelicals had came from the word, the wording that Rowling uses and the, and witchcraft. So, right. So she, so it's Hogwarts school of witchcraft and wizardry and all of the students and teachers use these very traditional, um, witchcraft tropes, the kind of stuff you'd see in a Halloween store. You know, they, they ride brooms, there's magic wands. They have these big pointy hats. There's, you know, stars and moons and all that kind of thing. And it's very, you know, it's very stereotypical. It has the more you look into it, the more you realize it has absolutely nothing to do with real world occult or, or witchcraft. But that traditional imagery and caricature, even uh, and the word especially, which does appear in the Bible and is forbidden by that word, understandably set off a lot of alarms for for many Christians and for many people. Since fantasy is just entertainment at bottom, um, it's not necessary, like you said. It's not something that God requires of of us. Although I think it's tremendously edifying. They looked at that and they said, "Ah, you know, the lemon is the, or the juice is not worth the squeeze. It is just there may be something good in there, but ultimately these things give us give us caution." Now I'm I'm giving people the most credit possible. There certainly were some who were just alarmist and who just said, "Ah, witchcraft. I, you know, we have these are evil 
and then they spread rumors about J.K. Rowling being a, a, a Wiccan or something and like that. There was that, that Onion is, article, pretty pretty infamous Onion article that got spread unironically by people. Yeah, yeah. Never so before social media, I think. Absolutely, yeah. And then you have books like Richard Abain's um, uh, criticism of Harry Potter, and that that gets passed around, and it's just sort of a you get Christian moms approaching you with concern, being like, "Have you read?" you know, these observations about there's, it's white magic, but it's still evil and all that kind of stuff. It's, it was very, very, um, Christians got very creative and thorough with the, with the sort of criticisms, but it was always about, well, I even saw some criticisms about the way the characters are rewarded for, um, for disobeying rules or something like that, which is, which is really funny because I mean, we could get into this, but the Harry and his friends and their relationship with rules is actually, I think, tremendously wise and instructive, and it's almost like a Jordan Peterson kind of kind of take. But we we can talk about that more if you want. I, but I the, definitely want to. Yes. On the, yeah. At the on the final analysis, I really think it was that word witchcraft, and that is forbidden in the Bible. Now we have to ask questions about what that means in the Bible and what it means in J.K. Rowling, because magic is another word. But most of the people who criticize Harry Potter, not all, but some. Uh, or quite a few would be okay with their kids watching Disney movies with magic in them. Now I did meet Wars. some, who, yeah, mm -hmm. right, or Star Wars. That's magic, but magic is not a word that has the same negative connotations for us as witchcraft does. So I think it, the word was the trigger. Exactly, and 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 it's a trigger that is not without precedent because we are building on a long and glorious tradition of well-meaning. Again, building the best possible case here. We want a steel man, as people say, uh, come up with the best case and not build a straw man here. Uh, Christians did have legitimate concerns based on the word, and also having inherited uh, a fairly recent uh, evangelical tradition, pretty unique to evangelicals, I think, uh, of raising the alarm about. The Procter and Gamble logo, uh, or yeah. you know, some other you know supposed symbols of occultism or witchcraft uh, that were hidden in uh, the background lyrics of songs, or uh, or perhaps um, maybe you shouldn't even use a dirt devil or make a devil's you're, food cake. You know, some of those. You're right. You got to play. You can't play that ACDC record backwards, and then you'll get the right the, the back, the back masking. And and you just know that some people, some musicians, were hearing about that, and then just uh, deciding to go troll people. Um, <laughs> and some people, of course, you know, trolling uh, does lead to some very evil impulses, but not always. And uh, in this case, you had the Onion article in July 2000. Uh, which is uh, supposedly unmasking uh, J.K. Rowling as a secret Satanist. And this was spread uh, unironically. Um, by the way, I think more recently, the Babylon Bee kind of reversed that and uh, ended up yeah. uh, gently ribbing uh, Christians by Christians. Uh, but more seriously, my wife recalls going to um, a Christian speaker at the at our public library uh, who was specifically warning about uh, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, which is book two. Uh, this speaker, she recalls, uh, was uh, was very concerned that in book two, mild spoilers here, uh, Jenny Weasley, uh, who has uh, magic abilities, uh, she uses a magic book uh, to allow her body to be taken over by an invisible dark spirit. Of course, we as fans, or even just being casually familiar with that story, would say, yes, and that was bad. In the story, right, it was a universal right. bad. You know, you may as well be reading the Bible and then getting annoyed that King David commits adultery. I mean, that it's the point is to condemn the behavior. Yeah, in fact, this you is might one of the strongest well, moments in the book. 
Yeah, you might as well say that, uh, you know, Narnia features a child eating a food that makes him captive to a witch. Right, right. That's not a good thing. <laughs> well, in this case, uh, the um, I think it's Jenny Weasley's dad, Arthur Weasley, who specifically says, Jenny, haven't we always told you not to follow anything or not to whatever? What's the quote? Uh, Don't do this if you can't see its brain. Like it's right. an encouragement of rational thinking uh, and wise choices. Yeah, it actually it actually mirrors something that um oh what character is it in Narnia who says it's a it's Beaver, it's Mr. Beaver. He says uh we were always told that uh it, it's a good idea to be suspicious of anything that looks human but isn't or oh, used to be right. human and isn't anymore or is is you know it's going to be human but isn't yet. You you know you step back and feel for your hatchet, that sort of thing. It's That's yeah, Mr. It's Beaver. The same, same yes. sort of advice. Yeah, it, it is, uh, which uh, which does indicate, and I think uh, readers, discerning readers of Narnia who also enjoyed Harry Potter could at least detect that Rowling was coming from a similar tradition. Uh, she at least, she had, um, like Eustace Clarence Scrub, unlike Eustace Clarence Scrub, she had read the right sorts of books, regardless of her personal faith. And we'll talk about probably in a little bit here, you know, some of the over overreaction, like, oh, 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 she's a Christian. It's Christian. Now it's okay, you know, because of the ending of book seven and all of that. You know, that uh, retroactively sanctifies the whole thing, you know, which is <laughs> a kind of an overcorrection, I think. Uh, but it doesn't mean we can't enjoy the series. Let's pause for a moment, apparate away from the wizarding world back into a science fiction universe namely that of our new sponsor for this episode, author T.E. Bradford, who just released a science fiction novel called Awakened. This comes courtesy of Elk Lake Publishing, and here is the back cover description. What if your worst enemy was your only hope? What if saving your life meant destroying your beliefs? How far would you go to survive? MACs, Manufactured Anotic Commandos, were designed for battle. Most people believe sending robotic soldiers into combat is better than risking human lives, but Kara has seen what happens when unfeeling, soulless automatons decide who lives and who dies. Machines don't care whether the enemy is holding a rake instead of a gun, or that a six-year-old girl watches from a bedroom window. All they know is what they were programmed for. Destruction. When Kara finds herself wounded and defenseless in the middle of a battle zone, she has no choice but to use the only weapon she can find, a disabled MAC. Without him, she won't make it out alive. With him, she might come out a different person. Will hate destroy her? Or will the natural love of a creator for its creation open her eyes to a truth that changes everything? That is the back cover description for Awakened from author T.E. Bradford. You can find the full description, purchase link, and the cover at our show notes for episode 90 as well as by going to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Uh, some of this, of course, as we mentioned in, in the concession stand before you got here, some of this does touch on that issue of fictional magic, and you touched on that. Uh, what do we mean by magic, uh, the word? Uh, what do we mean by witchcraft or wizardry? What does the Bible mean by condemning those occult practices among God's people? What are the goals that people use real-world occult practices to accomplish? This matters for the Christian. Uh, there are differences, a lot of differences, uh, between the intent of someone to try to control their world or predict the future using means that God has forbidden. There are differences between that and the more natural law-type magic that can be accessed by the magically gifted people in Rowling's wizarding world. Yeah, absolutely. It, it 
English story time magic is a very old tradition that goes back all, you know, centuries. And it's in countless stories. Rowling is very much tapping into, or very, was very much tapping into that English story time magic. And um, the same as Walt Disney was. In fact, a lot of the imagery is actually identical. And she's made it pretty clear that she doesn't believe this sort of thing exists. This is a story device. It's part of the enchantment of this world. And it is not meant at any point to really mirror real world witchcraft. In fact, the, the magic in Harry Potter, as you mentioned, is a very sort of mechanical, almost natural law sort of, um, uh, uh, sort of force. It, it is a, um, an energy that's built within the universe that ha- that certain people have the ability to access and shape. They use certain tools to do it. Um, and then they, you know, like the wands or, uh, these various, um, I, I want to call them, t- I almost want to call them Terangrial, but you know, the, uh, you know, using Robert Jordan's imagery, but I was the, wondering if this um, is a wheel of timeism. That's right, that's a you right. exact thing. I'm 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 not in that fan of at least not okay. yet. Okay, yeah, just don't watch the series on TV. We'll talk about okay. that. Okay, okay, but um, but yeah, there's magical objects and so forth. But this is an impersonal magic. It's very mechanical. Uh, it works almost like a technology. I've heard it called that. In fact, the only time that Rowling really has her characters engage in anything that remotely resembles real world the real world occult or real world attempts at magic is in the divination divination class Mm -hmm. which is which is portrayed significantly as a complete joke uh trelawney cannot teach people divination she fails at teaching students how to divine anything with crystal balls or tea or whatever i think they use some knuckle bones or something like that but it it just doesn't work except at key moments when she is seized by this prophetic spirit that gives her uh, utterance about the future. And it's very much like the prophets of the Old Testament, where she's recognized as a person who from time to time gets the word of the Lord, so to speak, and she speaks truth. And those prophecies by people, by her and people like them get stored in these like glass balls and put in the Department of Mysteries at the Ministry of Magic. But, you know, that's the plot of one of the one of the books, which is at the fifth one, I think. Um, uh, so yeah, yeah, it's Order of the Phoenix. Yeah, Order of the Phoenix. Right. So even that, you know, Hermione is famously dismissive about that class. And Hermione is like the most proficient of the three main friends at magic. But she recognizes this class is pretty much a fraud. Um, so it's it's funny. It's like her Rowling's nod to the fact that this magic in her universe is quite different. Um, it functions in a way that's very Cinderella, uh, although it's much more developed and you got all these Latin words. And there's a distinction made between... Um, between the the good magic and what's called the dark arts yeah but the distinction yeah the distinction is not about the source though and that's interesting this distinction is about the use so it doesn't appear to me that voldemort is using a different kind of magic from harry in fact they use a bunch of the same spells it seems that there are just certain uses of magic that are forbidden so there's three curses you know that are called unforgivable unforgivable there's the one that kills people there's the one that tortures people, and there's the one that makes people do what you want and turns them into your slaves. Uh, those are, by all appearances, the same kind of magic as everything else. But it's like nuclear weapons. You know, it's a it's a a wrong use of that magic. And then you got these dark creatures that are sort of hellish that 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 join in with the dark side at times, like Dementors. And then there's werewolves, although not all of them are bad. Um, and then there's you know a few others like that, but the magic there is not what we actually see. If you really study the occult, it's about 
um, discerning the future, uh, communing with the dead, communing with you know uh, other uh, creatures in the spirit realm or uh, personal entities of some kind. That never happens in Harry Potter. And then it can also be about um, worship of nature and sort of being one with the, that's more the new age manifestation. Yeah, there's no worship of nature in, in the Harry Potter series. Right. The, the only exception when I tell people that the fictional magic of Harry Potter is different from uh, people's attempts to practice the occult in the real world. The one exception you've already mentioned is divination, but you, you've already mentioned the, the various uh, ways that Rowling kind of gives that a, a hearty roast, uh, but mm-hmm. then only makes an exception for these sort of prophetic overrides that you never really know what's the source of this prophetic seizure that she gets, you know, that kind of sets uh, Harry and Voldemort on their collision course toward destiny. The only other exception to the difference between fictional magic and the wizarding world um, would, I think, be the ghosts. Uh, That's the, but, but that's, they're there for the aesthetic. They're there for that sense of the numinous. Uh, And in fact, in the books, particularly uh, at one point, I think after, I mean, heavy spoilers here, uh, again, refer to the concession stand about spoilers. It's been out for a while. Yeah, I mean, it has been, point. but still, I mean, Zach, Zach, uh, our co-host, uh, has not read them as far as I know. So it'd be a spoiler for him. I hope he takes care uh, in editing this interview. Uh, but after Harry's uncle Sirius uh, is unfortunately killed uh, in a battle in the Department of Mysteries, uh, Harry, as I recall, actually goes to one of the ghosts, I believe it's after Sirius dies, and asks, wait a minute, and why isn't he a ghost? Uh, and uh, the the answer is fairly vague. There's some method by which people who are killed come back as ghosts. And uh, it strikes me, I haven't researched this, but it strikes me as a bit of a retcon. Uh, if every wizard or witch who dies comes back as a ghost uh, to patrol the halls of Hogwarts, uh, then death is not serious. And by that point, uh, with the uh, Harry Potter series advanced into more YA level uh, and even grown-up level, of, of, of readers uh, instead of middle grade, uh, you need death to be serious. You need mm-hmm. to pun very much <laughs> unintended there. Uh, surely you can't be serious. Yes, we're all thinking it. Um, that's, I think, the only exception, though. Harry does not consult the ghosts for information about his future. The only indication he gets about his destiny comes from this strange prophecy that comes from nowhere and not by some mechanical practice of the light condemned in Deuteronomy 18, which is condemned, by the way, refer to our previous episodes of Fantastical Truth. It's condemned, God condemns it, because he promises that he will send his final prophet, whom Christians understand is Jesus Christ, and it is to him we will listen. We're not supposed to imitate the practices of our pagan neighbors, trying to guarantee our future, make sure that our kids are going to live long, or that we're going to have a good harvest and survive long in the land. Yeah, exactly. The, the magic forms, the witchcraft, the divination in um, the Law of Moses is pretty clearly something along the lines of an animistic, the animistic practices that were, um, or, or, or mediumship that was very common in Canaanite society and, and in many, basically every other ancient society. You know, the old Norse uh, religions would have fallen under the same kind of condemnation. And it's this attempt to illegitimately control creation. There's a, um, you know, communing with spirits that have uh, questionable intent and speaking with the dead who, whether those are actually dead people or not, is up for debate. And then trying to shape and mold and control the creation outside of or beyond or around God. And so instead of communing with him and worshiping him and acknowledging him as the one who gives harvest and life and breath and everything, you are. 
um, you're attempting to seize control that doesn't belong to you. Now, in a magical world, you have that whole thing is kind of, it kind of works a little bit differently because magic is now part of the sandbox, right? There is a force that enables people to, um, to, to control the world or to tap into some higher level of energy or to, uh, you know, cast spells or things like that. And it's in Harry Potter, it works in an extremely mechanical fashion. I would say that if you're worried about, uh, if you're worried about portrayals of magic in fantasy or sci-fi that, uh, would potentially bring you up against or flirt with violating Deuteronomy's uh, directives, you should be a lot more worried about stuff like Star Wars because um, the Force has a will. The Force is living. The Force has some kind of plan for people. And apparently it's really schizophrenic because there's a good side and a bad side. So there's a lot of, you know, that brings in the Eastern imagery and everything. Um, in Harry Potter, magic does not have a will. There is no personal quality to it whatsoever. And the even the ghost, I, I'm glad you mentioned them because the ghosts are the one thing that sort of um, that sort of blurs that line between living and dead and the, com the communion and communication with the dead. But the ghosts are trappings in Harry Potter. They're absolutely aesthetic. In fact, every single one of the ghosts, with the possible exception of the what's her name, the Gray Lady, oh, the or Gray Lady, um, yeah, is Ravenclaw. Uh, yeah, right. She, she turns out to be uh, Ravenclaw's daughter. Yeah, the daughter. Right. With the exception of her, all of the ghosts are very satirical and funny. Um, Peeves is very funny. He's a poltergeist. Nearly headless Nick is really funny, um, and I think that's the one that Harry talks to about the afterlife. Mm -hmm. um, the the bloody Baron is funny in a kind of grouchy way. They're all um, cartoonish, and we never get an ex a real explanation as to why the ghosts are there, other than you know it's fun. But uh, I, I suspect something along the lines of, you know, Casper's ghostology is going on where these are people who are just too attached to the world or weren't already. I think she even says something to that effect. They couldn't face death. And so they got stuck. That in sounds a, familiar. In place. Yeah. Yeah. Which means and, that and, some guys with proton packs are going to show up, I think. Right, right. Yeah, right. But it's uh, that even her commentary on the ghost seems to be that there's something about them that is. Um, cowardly or or wrong or they just couldn't let go of their life and harry is seen as very uh manly dumbledore even compliments him along those lines and says you are man. a brave man because of what you because you didn't fear to give up your life you didn't fear to um to embrace death like an old friend like it says uh in the in the Be beetle tales of beetle the bard mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And that, that kind of virtue, um, we, we would call that, I think, a, um, a morality derived from Christianity uh, just suffuses the whole series. It is, as the kids say these days, based. And we'll get to that yeah. in, in just a moment. Just very honoring of traditional virtues like courage, uh, defense against the dark arts is a huge theme throughout the book. And as we'll discuss in a moment, Rowling herself, I think, counts in some ways as a flawed, but limited true defense against the dark arts teacher because now we do see people trying to manipulate nature and insist that everyone else go along with their dark arts uh, she i think believes what she wrote about uh, real quick though before we proceed to that second attempt to cancel the harry potter series uh, what a strange plot twist that is by the way worthy of the wizarding world itself you mentioned a moment ago uh, the uh, secondary evangelical criticism uh, that Harry and his friends flout the school rules and are only yeah. rewarded for it. Uh, I, I had heard that. 
uh, in addition to the criticism of the magic, uh, it seems to be an emergency backup critique. Um, on the one level, I personally sympathize with that because, yes, you know, Harry and Ron and Hermione, they, they get into trouble, at least in the first few books. And then suddenly, uh, you know, and it's even a meme among fans and Dumbledore uh, steps in at the last moment and wish fulfillment time awards House Gryffindor 15,000 points and they and they win uh, the competition at, at the end of the school year. Um that, of course, fans make fun of that a little bit, and I kind of get it, but I also personally think that it is ultimately fulfilled near the end of the series when Dumbledore takes Harry with him on a quest. Uh, they go to try to find the locket at the cave uh, by the sea, and Dumbledore tells Harry, you must do everything I tell you, even if I beg you not to. Like, there is nothing more important than this. He, in, in, in a sense, is giving Harry the very adult level responsibility of following the rules. And then you see, especially in the book, you see Harry carry forward this ethic in the final book. I'm Dumbledore's man, Harry says, you know, even if they're slandering him, even if I discover his flaws, uh, is frankly a lesson that I think readers now could particularly learn from, you know, following the virtues and the rules, the good rules laid down by their wise forebears, uh, even if it seems like they have flaws or the rules are stupid. Yeah. In the early parts of the series, there's a there's a certain teenage childish disregard for the rules. In fact, um, at one point, Dumbledore says that you know Harry reminds him a lot of his father because he has you know all this talent and and charm and a certain disregard for the rules. And so you you do see the hijinks happening there, and that's just kind of that's kind of a trope of YA fiction. Oh, but it, it develops it develop it develops in an interesting direction, and I think that. Ultimately, that that criticism fails just deeply at understanding the intent behind the way Rowling wrote her characters. Harry does not slavishly follow the rules precisely because he's devoted not to the letter of the law, but to the spirit of the law. And this is where Jordan Peterson comes in. Um, in his first book, uh, or first popular level book, it was called 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. And it's all about following the rules. I, I like to compare it to Proverbs. This book lays down some rules about reality that are going to uh, get you out of your place of chaos and impotence, especially as a young man, and guide you toward order, responsibility, meaning. And he says that meaning is going to be found. Your life's purpose is going to be found in assuming hard responsibilities and following rules. And so he lays down those rules. In the second book, I like to compare it to Ecclesiastes. It's called Twelve or beyond order, twelve more rules for life, and this is where he gets into the where the rules fail you, where you have to mature to the point where you are no longer devoted to the letter of the law, but to the spirit of the law. You have discerned the intent behind the rules, and you begin to obey that and pursue that. And he is, he actually cites Jesus as a great example of this, where Jesus is constantly portrayed in the Gospels as bucking the rules and disobeying them, and at times deliberately provoking the rule obsessed people by, you know, having his disciples uh, pick some heads of grain on the Sabbath or not washing their hands or not fasting or not following all these different rules that the, that the elders of their society have laid down for them. And he says, uh, look, it's because I'm here to uh, reaffirm the spirit of the law, not the letters of the law that you've sort of, you know, written around our society. And he even says that the man well, was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. He corrects their reading of the Mosaic law. And I think what happens with Harry, if you look at the rules that he violates and his, and his friends violate, particularly 
as the series goes on and they mature, you realize that they're always doing it in the service of the intent behind the rules. So uh, they they uh, they break into the Ministry of Magic because they're after this prophecy that is crucial to defeating Voldemort, and um, they you know they end up paying a heavy price for it. But this isn't like an ends justify the means things. This is like a when your systems break down, you have to be continue to be good and pursue good, even if it means breaking some of the rules. Um, Dumbledore does exactly that too. He co- he's constantly bending and breaking the rules. Where he's like, you remember where uh, where uh, the Ministry Minister of Magic and Kingsley Shacklebolt show up and uh, and they're like, well, we're here to arrest you, Dumbledore. And he's like, oh, that's that's fine, but there's just one problem. I have no intent of coming with you. And, and, you know, he just hit Fox comes down and he, he apparate this apparates and, and Kingsley's like, uh, well, you know, you may not like a minister, but you can't deny Dumbledore's got style. I, I think that's just in the movie adaptation, but it was a good line anyway. Um, and you see this again and again, the, where it's the department of mist or mysteries or the forbidden, what's it called? The restricted section in the Hogwarts library yes, yes, or being out of bed there. Mm-hmm. after hours. And what happens as time goes on is you get, these uh these pharisees who are in service of the rules uh consummately in uh, uh what's her name um uh, dolores umbridge. umbridge yes umbridge yeah That's why she's so the she, worst villain right right what does she do she starts covering the walls of the great hall with rules new regulations that that are supposed to keep things in line and and keep the students in in their nice little neat predetermined uh, lanes, but it's tyranny, and it's actually tyranny in the service of evil because Voldemort has already taken over the, the government and the press and all that, and she's she and the uh, minister are just in in denial about it. And those people who truly love the intent behind the rules, those are the ones who are willing to break those bad rules. Um, and so I think you see a very Jesus-like element in the whole thing. At no point does Harry or any of the other main characters. Uh, violate rules for malice and only a couple times do they violate them for like petty personal gain and they they're kind of punished for that you know they get they they recognize that you can't you can't act that way so i i was very you know i'm not impressed at all with that objection you can pretty much level that against any any fiction anywhere in fact it, it it has an echo to me of um you know those who would say you can't eat the grains on the uh, fuck the grains and eat them on the yeah. on the Sabbath, and and Harry to me echoes Jesus coming back to them and saying, "Have you not read that even David and his companions, you know, when they were hungry, they ate the bread that was set aside for the priest, and you know, sort of broke the rules like that." Jesus was really cavalier about, about that stuff um, because he realized what God constantly wrote in the prophets, which is that I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That the yeah. that the deeper virtues are what's important. Oh, exactly. And I think that's what the kids mean when they say based is there is this wisdom that people have, whether or not they're Christians, uh, God has put his common grace in the world. And people can understand that there is such a thing as foolish choices. And there's such a thing as wise choices. So we'll go from the folklore of JK Rowling's wizarding world and make a brief unscheduled Hogwarts Express stop by our third sponsor. This episode has three for the price of two. This is the novel Thrice from Andrew D. Meredith, a fantasy for grown-up readers. Here's the back cover description. 
Forced out on the road with the boy left in his care, Jovan determines to journey into the cave of the bear to seek out those who would do him and his boy harm. It is the boy and his bottomless well of soul-searing magic that they seek. They would do anything to exploit it, and Jovan would do anything to stop them. Thrice is the first book in the Needle and Leaf series from Andrew D. Meredith. Here's endorsement from New York Times bestselling author Graham McNeil, who wrote A Thousand Sons, and he says, quote, Steeped in a wealth of brooding Slavic folklore, Thrice is a deeply personal story of a reluctant father and the mysterious child in his care. It beautifully weaves a tale of personal survival with a much grander narrative of ill-fated bargains and dangerous magic of the past to tell a story that's both intimate and epic. End quote. I love reading these. As the t-shirt says, so many books, so little time, this may need to go on my stack and it may need to go on yours. If so, find the cover, the full description and the purchase links once again at the show notes for episode 90, as well as lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. And I actually think that Christians, especially, I mean, you do a lot of apologetics and so you see a lot more of this than I do. When Christians, I think, are debating uh, the ethics of particular public policies or how you're supposed to measure your tone as opposed to condemning a false teacher and some of these things that people do. I think what's missing uh, amongst all the discussions about whether or not you're being sensitive enough or being loving enough or even being truthful enough, I think what's missing is, are you being wise? Like you mentioned the book of Proverbs and some of the similarities with the, um, the, the our, our favorite noble heathen, uh, Dr. Peterson. Uh, he seems to be capturing some wisdom and some ideas from Proverbs that I actually have noticed is kind of missing uh, among some Christian teaching. I don't see people using the wise-foolish divide Mm -hmm. as much as I think I ought to. And I used to be annoyed by the book of Proverbs in the Bible. I will admit I like the Psalms better, and the Proverbs just seem kind of trite and general, and yet that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So God obviously wants us to think through the implications of our choices and not just think about love slash hate or even uh, 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 good slash evil, but wise slash foolish. And I think fiction has a unique role in helping simulate these decisions and then ask questions. Okay, Harry gets up in the middle of the night to discover the secret that could actually save Hogwarts. Well, who's right? Him for having that greater goal, uh, despite being you know, uh, youthful and prepubescent today, you know, he's walking around in his invisibility cloak. I was quoting the Potter Puppet Pals video series there. Um, he's flawed. You know, I, I think that Harry, especially by the end, is more of a Christ figure figure, uh, more like a Christian figure. He, he does make wrong choices, but those kinds of choices are not so much an endorsement of youthful rebellion uh, as they are just an acknowledgement that A, hard choices need to be made uh, when you're trying to save the castle. Uh, and B, kids make dumb choices also. Uh, and when you're in a fantasy novel, uh, you're going to make kind of the same chi- kinds of choices uh, all at once. And I think, uh, and we're moved to our final chapter here, I think that that intent by Rowling that carries through in the series and to a large extent in the films uh, is confirmed by the fact that newer readers or now older readers of Harry Potter are attempting a cancellation part two, and that's chapter three here, cancellation part two. Why are these folks generally on the social and political left? Why are they despising the wizarding world? And this is where we get into some other weird plot twists in the real world, as that, as you've written in your article, we'll of course have that link in the show notes to your 2018 article, Why is Harry Potter More Christian Than His Creator? Um, Rowling herself has been 
a person of the, um, what would you call it, the classical left, you know, very much in favor of big government. And to some extent, she endorses sexualityism. Uh, and uh, she was comparing, you know, certain presidential candidates to uh, Death Eaters or Voldemort and like kind of cheapening the impact of her own world. That was three years ago. But in short, what is happening now, especially among uh, Rowling's new fundamentalist critics, even while Christians are coming around from the criticism and realizing, actually, this is a pretty based Judeo-Christianish series. <laughs> right. Yeah. What's happening is, in essence, that Rowling has decided that uh, she's going to get off at the current uh, train stop. I don't know if it's platform nine and three quarters, but it's pretty close uh, of the sexual revolution. She doesn't want to go any further. Um, so she was okay with gay marriage and all that. She thought it sounded nice, let people have equal rights, all that. But but she's not interested in going into the full redefinition of male and female. She she's what's called a turf, uh, derogatively called a turf, um, which is trans exclusionary radical feminist, and it's basically a feminist who is the, of the old school variety, um, more second wave type, who really believes that women. Uh, exist that women are real things and that they have a unique claim to an experience of oppression and subjugation by virtue of being women. And she would very much classify herself in that category. And she believes that it is not possible or even right for men to sort of say, ah, we can just declare ourselves women and co-opt the experience of women. And, uh, that's the claim of the transgender movement, that women do not exist, that a woman is an arbitrary category that can be assigned by sheer willpower to anyone. And she rejects that for a lot of very good reasons. Um, among the reasons she cited is that, uh, you know, uh, men who transition to quote unquote women and then compete against women in sports tend to do terrible things to them besides just beating them and, and you know, stealing their recognition. Um, that women, it eradicates women's private spaces. They can't know, have their own locker rooms and bathrooms and, and things like that anymore. Uh, and, and then it just devalues the very concept of woman. And she has, she has repeatedly criticized that and without even being uh, too critical or even denying the experience of, of as she sees them, tra transgender people. She's like, I, I want to honor them. I want to uh, recognize that experience. But at the same time, this is a bridge too far, guys. We can't go this way. And that has resulted in Rowling being uh, really persona non grata in, or undesirable number one, I should say, in campus cancel culture type circles. But it's very, it, I think it's reached a point where it's now the majority opinion on the left because Rowling has been again and again uh, sort of protested, deplatformed, um, condemned as problematic. There was even a picture. Uh, a couple of weeks ago from a Barnes and Noble over across the pond where some employee had put out a stack of quote unquote unproblematic Wizarding World books. And it was just other fantasy series that yeah. are not by J.K. Rowling. And so it's, it is really interesting that you get this puritanical backlash against J.K. Rowling and an attempt to cancel her in a, that in a way very much mirrors the original Christian attempt from the 90s it's, it has the same puritanical flavor. It has the same uh, censorious uh, attitude about it. And it's what a friend of mine, Samuel James, identified as. Uh, let me see if I remember what he called it on Twitter. It was, a, it was a, an ethic of exclusion is what he called it. So 
this idea is that we have to exclude the evil. We have to lock the the forces of darkness out. And there's no positive ethic within it. There's nothing positive we're saying. It's just that we've got to get rid of the forces of evil. And Rawling is now classified as the forces of evil. And he thinks that puritanical ethic of exclusion doesn't actually last. It doesn't actually have the the kind of staying power that good, solid morality has. And we saw that in the evaporation of the Christian opposition to Harry Potter. And I think we'll we'll probably see it in an eventual evaporation or or exhaustion of the exclusion ethic on the left. Against I certainly hope so. Yeah, and I think that's why people have uh, kind of used the term based, which to me is a secular version of Christ's encouragement to build your worldview on a solid foundation. You are based, you are grounded. Uh, this stuff, this new criticism of Rowling's world is ephemeral. Uh, I don't think it's going to last, whether you're speaking of eternity or just speaking of the next 10 years or so. Uh, her world has staying power and it has virtue and it has critiques, as you've mentioned in your article and now, of big government. Uh, and media flippancy, uh, and even um, the takeover of both uh, by even darker forces. Uh, And the series altogether condemns what is constantly referred to as dark magic. And that's why I love to see Rowling uh, when she chooses to. She's always very strategic, I think. When she chooses to speak on behalf of traditional male-female gender roles, and particularly the the attempt to, as, as they say, trans the kids, uh, that's where you see her warrior side come out. Uh, she is like Molly Weasley yeah. standing and defending her daughter and saying, not her, you blankety blank, both in the book <laughs> and in the film. Uh, gotta admit, I love that moment and I love that spirit. Uh, and I think that that is a healthy based Judeo-Christian spirit uh, that permeates the series and that does help us to con- uh, combat real world darkness. Uh, I mean, I if, I may, if I may, this yeah, is this is one of my favorite things about the Harry Potter series. And we haven't even really touched on it that much but it's it's certainly in the article i wrote a couple of years ago the whole moral tenor of the harry potter series is deeply conservative deeply pro-tradition deeply pro-family and it, if you want to know what a story is really about and what an author really endorses look at the portrayals of people and so the the sort of rootless fruitless uh, careerist narcissistic i'm the center of the universe attitude is embodied in someone like Bellatrix Lestrange. Yes. Is embodied in these Death Eaters who I'm fabulous. I'm in the fishnets. I am, you know, I'm the bad bee, and uh, I I'm in charge. And I'm maybe you know I may even hope that Voldemort has a thing for me. You know, she's so twisted. But Molly Weasley is is the exact opposite. She's not fabulous. She doesn't look good in fishnets. She uh, she has eight million kids. Uh, I, I call them a. And obviously, an Irish Catholic family who has oh, no yes. idea what birth they may as well be homeschooled if they weren't sending them they off may to well. school. They're dirt poor, single income, um, and they live in this ramshackle place. And to Harry, it's the most magical place he's ever been in his life. Just the the fact the the fact of the love that's in the borough in that family home, and the way that Rowling portrays it. And then when when the when the mother figure, when this woman who's given her whole life to her kids, comes up against Bellatrix. What does she do? She blows her away. <laughs> she's, yes, like yes. she's been hiding and this magical ability it. and power. Yeah, we love it. Rightly so. And that's what Rowling intended. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's Mama Bear with a wand is is what's happening there. Uh, again, totally based. We need to wrap this up soon. Uh, yeah, I encourage anybody who's who's heard early evangelical rumors about the Harry Potter series, give it a try. Uh, if you have a cult uh, a background or some kind of stigma attached, then don't give it a try. You know, your mileage may vary. Your goal through fiction pursuits, fantasy pursuits, is to glorify Jesus and become more like Him, not just to entertain yourself. True biblical recreation will always lead back to Him. And I think that with discernment and care and uh, an eye toward Lewis's, uh, what, how do you pronounce that again? Sensuits? Sensuits? Sen yes. I do not know yes. German, but I've heard it pronounced a few times. Yes. So. Well, I've only read it a few times, which is, by the way, a, a homeschool uh, side effect. You, you read words, you become more familiar with how they look on the page uh, than you are familiar with how they are said. Uh, and, and then as for uh, the more leftist critiques of Rowling's world, like I think they, they, they take two forms. And uh, we may, may need to end with this. Uh, there seems to be one form of, I want to keep everything that's good about the series, but throw out the creator. Like I've literally seen some people uh, act out rebellion against the capital C creator in microcosm by saying, I'm going to keep the world, but it's mine now. I made this. I made this, uh, which is just um, outrageous and hilarious and gross, <laughs> irrational all at once. But then others will just throw it out entirely. And I think that that actually may be the more dangerous approach because now you're rejecting the gift and the giver. Uh, and just becoming completely disordered, bent back on yourself, which is the ultimate consequence of idolatry. Uh, and that's kind of that portrayal of Bellatrix. This is complete disordered witch uh, in the traditional sense, uh, who is uh, not a productive person. Uh, she is she is evil. And, and then there's the other kind, which is just umbrage. You know, this this bureaucratic, you know, make the rules, violate the spirit of the rules and being completely ignorant of the dark magic that is infiltrating your very institution. All of those serve as healthy warnings that I think readers can appreciate, uh, even while they also appreciate the virtues embodied by the crew at Hogwarts. So, uh, Shane, unless you got more, we can end there uh, with encouragements for people to follow you at your various pursuits, uh, breakpoint.org, and where else can people uh, keep track of what you're working on? So the main thing I do, Stephen, is called the Upstream Podcast. It's one of the newer podcasts of the Colson Center. Uh, we've been going for about, it's not even two years yet and you can find that at colsoncenter.org slash upstream i have had an absolute joy just inviting guests on talking about everything from art and science and theology and literature to um you know to just having musicians on to talk about their their songs and things like that we've done some live interviews we've done a bunch of of really deep dives on various subjects and the, the core idea of upstream is that we don't want to be passive uh, sort of victims of the cultural currents that want to sweep us along. We want to be, you know, fish that can swim upstream. We want to be the kind of people who know where we're going uh, and have that power of self-direction. And so it's all about learning to do that on a variety of subjects. And I am very much a learner alongside you. So um, check out Upstream. I, I, I've really enjoyed hosting that. Definitely check out Upstream. It's good. I love the name. I'm glad you got in the name description there because that's just exactly the kind of, of spirit that we're pursuing uh, at Lorehaven and Fantastical Truth as well. So, Shane, thank you so much for joining us in the real world to explore the wizarding world. Uh, if there are any further developments, we'd love to have you back. Uh, I guess we're rolling what is on our 17th cancellation attempt now. They just tried to dox her house, uh, which was too <laughs> far even for Twitter. And she gets on there and she just very classily uh, fires back uh, her various uh, spells uh, at, uh, at her own little posse of dementors uh, hanging around outside with their signs and uh, trying to expose where she lives. I think it's a castle. She's got her own castle by now, I think. And I think it's, it's pretty well deserved. So. I hope so. And, and, you know, I say 
once in a while I'll say a prayer for her because yes. I don't think, you know, I, don't, I, I would not classify her as a, as an Orthodox Christian. I think she's a very textbook liberal yes. Christian. I don't know what this, I don't know what the state of her soul is obviously, but I do know that she's profoundly influenced by Christian themes and ideals and it, it shows up in her writing. And I think that she's probably a woman of some principle and ideals, but obviously I disagree with a ton of what she thinks. So it'd be really cool to see her kind of, you know, come around and, and get more serious about the themes in her book and where they lead. Yeah, to uh, to cite the last battle, I hope she's more of an emeth and less of a tash. And yeah, we know yeah. that God can work in people's souls to that level. So really appreciate you coming on. Um, to borrow from the other fantasy franchise, I wish you further up and further in. Thanks, brother. It's been great. Well, of course, I enjoyed exploring the wizarding world all over again with Shane Morris. There's nothing like just getting a fan of an imaginary world into the room and going over what you love about the story so much. Anything else I have to say would probably just repeat what we've already covered, but there's probably some stuff we didn't cover. And some of that we mentioned in our concession stand. If you want to return to this topic, and you probably do, or to share your own experience with Harry Potter, negative, mixed, positive, did you glorify God, did it tempt you toward idolatry in some way, any of that is completely rational response, and respond to us. Send us a note at podcast at lorehaven.com. You can also comment on this episode if you're finding it on your streaming platform or at our website, lorehaven.com. You can also tag us on social media. Just look for Lorehaven on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And make sure you subscribe to lorehaven.com, just lorehaven.com slash subscribe, or go to the site, look for the pop-up, enter your email address. It's totally free. We don't spam. We don't share it anywhere else. We will just share with you the news about our new upcoming project, God willing, launching in January of 2022. To help you go on, here's a hint, book quests. Next on Fantastical Truth, what if you were a princess in a Rohan-like kingdom, exiled from the palace to guard the borders? What if you were riding a wild horse you had barely tamed that could set itself on fire and explode flames from its head like a dragon? Naturally, author Jillian Bronte Adams can answer these questions in her new novel from Enclave Publishing, Of Fire and Ash. I'm reading it now, and she will join us on our next episode to explore this fantasy world with its elemental horses and elemental fantastic themes. Meanwhile, speaking of fantastic themes, whether it's Of Fire and Ash, or any other Christian-made fantasy, or the Harry Potter series, any book, make sure that you're enjoying it, if you do, for the glory of God alone, according to his revelation, the Bible, the book of books, make sure that you're not just seeking to entertain yourself, but to take every thought and every imagination captive for Christ, trace any dim reflections of his light in fantasy to the source, our creator, the author of reality, who, by the way, incarnated as we celebrate this season as a baby, and we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth 